Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Hoover Institution podcast, The Pacific Century, our look at affairs in the Indo-Pacific region, fate of America, China, India, and we're lucky to have with us today a great guest. Oh, I should have said first, I'm John Yu, a fellow at the Hoover Institution and one of your hosts, and I'm joined by Misha Oslin, another fellow at the Hoover Institution and the co-host of our podcast, who's going to introduce our great new guest today. Misha, take it away. Hello, John. Uh, we do have a great guest today. We are very pleased to be joined by Andrew Nathan of Columbia University. Andy, to his friends and an old friend of mine, uh, those of you, uh, first of all, there are undoubtedly numerous listeners who studied with Andy at Columbia out there and others who have, of course, read his numerous books and uncountable articles. Uh, but for those of you who don't know Andy, and you should, he is the class of 1919 professor of political science at Columbia University. He is an expert on Chinese politics and foreign policy. He has a particular interest in human rights uh, and has been uh, head of the human rights, uh, former chair of the board of human rights in Asia, member of the advisory committee on human rights in Asia. Uh, he has, of course, held numerous positions at uh, at Columbia. Uh, among his books, uh, some that you may know, uh, probably China's Search for Security, one of his best known books, uh, as well as the Tiananmen Papers, which was co-edited with Perry Link. And we should note, Andy, as I'm sure many of your colleagues and friends and students have done this year, that this year marks your 50th anniversary teaching at Columbia University. So congratulations. Yeah, I'm beginning to get used to it. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) finally, You finally figured out what you're doing in year 49. The next 50 years will really be when you hit your stride. This is my 51st year teaching, so I've, I've finished up 50 years already. That, that is fantastic. Well, Andy, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Well, we're really happy to, to have you here be in, in part because what we often do, and we're, we, we're happy to do it since we have a big Washington audience and New York audience, is speak to a lot of the, the, the hot-button issues that are on the, it's in the headlines and things that Congress is considering or the president is doing. And what we don't do quite enough of, though John and I both want to, is be able to step back a little bit and, and think a little bit more broadly about uh, and more deeply about what is going on in the region and and in China. In fact, we had a recent episode with David Shambaugh on his new book, uh, From Mao to Now, and, and talked a lot about leadership styles and changes. Um, and what you've done uh, in particular in, in recent years has really been to, to help develop frameworks for trying to understand um, Chinese foreign policy and, and, and put it in, in not in the, the sort of headline way, but in a much, much more rigorous way of looking at uh, drivers and, uh, and influences and outcomes. Um, but you also have some pretty interesting claims that are, are themselves hot button topics in Washington. I'd like to start with one that you wrote back in an excellent piece uh, on the domestic drivers of Chinese foreign policy you wrote in 2016, where you wrote that China Quote, China is a vulnerable giant whose foreign policy is essentially defensive, um, end quote. Now, that was five years ago, and I'm wondering if you still believe that. And, and if so, can you explain a little bit what you mean by that? Yeah, I think that's still true, although China now has the capacity to begin to improve its security situation. But 
Uh, you mentioned the book China's Search for Security, which I co-authored with Andrew Scobell, now at the U.S. Institute of Peace. And Andrew and I argued that China's uh, security situation is threatened in many ways. First of all, it's domestically insecure with a turbulent middle class that's hard to control with, with huge populations around the periphery, the Uyghurs, the other Islamic populations on the periphery, Kazakhs and others, the Tibetans, Hong Kong. It doesn't control Taiwan, which is a security deficit from their point of view, has a lot of enemies around it, Japan, India, Vietnam, and many, many others. And every place that China looks, they see the United States meddling in there. And there's a history to that, of course, as you know, when the Communist Party took over China, we, the United States declared a policy of containment and encirclement. We boycotted them and so on. And then when we restored relations with China, when Nixon went there and started the policy of engagement, a lot of the public rationale for that policy was that China would change. So, you know, uh, and meaning that the Communist Party would be overthrown sooner or later by some kind of pro-American democratic regime. So when the Chinese leaders look at the world around them, they see one looming threat. One big hostile power is the United States. Um, and, uh, of course, as you know, Deng Xiaoping and his successors, Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao, felt that it wasn't time yet to really challenge the United States. But Xi Jinping arrives at a time when China feels that it is time to begin to challenge the United States, both because Chinese uh, resources and capabilities have increased and also because they perceive the United States as in decline and very weak since probably since the Obama administration. So um, you, when you, uh, in this article in particular, but in, in other pieces, you write about, um, uh, there's, there's four different uh, risks that China faces for different sort of circles of, of what it considers to be risk starting from the inside and, and working out. Um, but when you look at it uh, and look at Chinese foreign policy and security policy from a Japan perspective, let's say, or a, a uh, uh, so even an American perspective, you know, the old cliche, uh, the best defense is a good offense. It certainly seems to be how those outside of China interpret what you're calling a, a largely defensive um, foreign policy that, that it is in these days, and you mentioned with, with Xi Jinping, increasingly offensive. So is there a point, and you're a political scientist, I'm a historian, um, is there a point where defense turns into offense? I mean, how, how do we uh, how do we determine when we're in a, a different and a sort of fundamentally different uh, mode of, of, uh, of engagement with China? I'm using engagement broadly, not necessarily cooperatively, uh, that goes from what might have been seen as defensive under a weaker China to what we can really only interpret as, as offensive under a stronger China. Mm. Well, you know, the United States had a very privileged position in Asia for a long time, I'd say, from the from the end of the Korean War forward. We had a, you know, forward deployed position in Asia. We have uh, alliances with Japan, South Korea, form Australia, formerly with the Philippines, although that's not very operative. We are Indo, what's now called Indo-Pacific Command, operated freely in the waters uh, up to the 12 nautical mile line off of China. 
we had our uh, military base, and then it became a sort of political military base in Taiwan, 90 nautical miles off of the uh, Chinese uh, coast. So, yeah, the Chinese want to push the U.S. presence back uh, away from their shores. I think that's a lot of what the South China Sea issue is about, is that for many, many years, decades, the U.S. freely navigated the South China Sea, surveilling the seabed, listening to Chinese communications, observing Chinese air and maritime activities. And that, that's too close for comfort from China's point of view. So they want to push. So if you call that pushing um, offense, <laughs> uh, that could, you know, I understand your use of the word, but it's not the same offense as one that says China wants to invade where would they invade? You know, does China want to invade or control the United States, or does China want to invade this Russian Far East or Korea? You know, there's actually no place for them to invade. So, uh, so in that sense of the word offense, I would say it doesn't. The word doesn't fit. So, actually, picking up on that, you also um, note in uh, in uh, actually a more recent uh, piece. Um, I think it's coming out now on Biden's Biden's China policy, old wine and new bottles. Um, you write that essentially you, you claim that China is not expansionist, is picking up on what you were just saying, um, but it only seeks to expand its control over territories it has long claimed. But of course, the, the claims themselves are contested. So it isn't, isn't that expansionist? And you mentioned South China Sea, you mentioned Taiwan, you mentioned um, Oxford. Chin uh, and, and some other places. So isn't that, though, inherently expansionist, especially when it's, you know, it's a contested claim? Uh-huh. Um, you know, Taylor Fravel, who's a political scientist at MIT, wrote a book some time back. I for, sorry, I forget the title of the book about China's territorial claims. China had been, um, you know, an empire. And uh, then um, it was uh, invaded, surrounded, and so forth by the imperial powers in the 19th century and 20th century. And uh, it turned from an empire into a nation state. And in that process, there were quite a few contested uh, boundaries with actually with all of its neighboring countries. And, And you would know this better than I do as a historian. But Taylor's book shows that at various times, China negotiated solutions to most of the contested territorial boundaries, especially with the Soviet Union. That was a very important one where there had been a war fought. Um, But there remain certain territorial disputes. Uh, Some of those are in the South China Sea, several of those disputes. Some of them were with India. There are, I think, three contested lines territorial lines that had been drawn by the British, which the Chinese never accepted. So these remain because the conditions for settling those disputes uh, that Taylor analyzes in his book, you know, there has to be a time when you settle a dispute by seeking cooperation with the other party and finding a sort of 50-50 solution. But but in the maritime area, they haven't... uh, found that sweet spot, nor with India, where there's a tremendous amount of hostility. So those 
territorial disputes have not yet been settled. But if you were China, or frankly, and I don't mean to defend China, I, as you said before, I'm a human rights activist, and I'm very, very critical of China. But in my uh, aspect as an analyst, I try to see what's going on. Uh, take the South China Sea. The PRC inherited from the previous regime, the Guomindang, this map that claimed the entire well, virtually the entire South China Sea within the so-called, what was then called the 11-dash line, and now there are nine dashes. The KMT, So they're more cooperative now? No, what I'm saying is that they... No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Yeah, yeah, I see. Well, <laughs> two less dashes. Oh, I see, two fewer dashes. <laughs> yeah, two fewer I, dashes. And I forget where those uh, two dashes that are missing... Oh, actually, I think they went away because, in fact, China did settle with Vietnam... <laughs> a dispute along a couple of those dashes. I think that's how that happened. Um, you know, so if you inherited this claim to something that's extraordinarily valuable, and as I indicated before, the value of the South China Sea, people talk about fisheries, which definitely are hugely important for all the Asian populations and undersea oil. But I think the most important thing about the South China Sea is that it's a very, very critical strategic space, especially if there was going to be a war over Taiwan. And the U.S. knew that, and that's why the U.S. was constantly surveying the, uh, you know, the, the area to be prepared for a war. And, and so uh, if you inherited that claim, you wouldn't just give it up uh, to be a nice guy or because the United States claims that there's some mystical thing called freedom of navigation principle whose uh, interpretation is simply our interpretation. It's not, you know, uh, uh, and uh, nor would you just give it up because the UN arbitration tribunal says that, uh, you know, these things are not islands and so on. So, you know, you would wait for the moment to, if you're ever going to give it up, you would wait for the moment when you're going to get something of equal value in return. So I, that's why I don't consider it expansionist in the sense that it's an old claim. I think of all of China's territorial claims, this is probably the weakest in, um, you know, in legal terms. Their claim to Taiwan is incredibly strong, actually, in legal terms. Nobody disputes it. The United States doesn't, and Taiwan doesn't. Everybody says Taiwan is a part of China, you know, legally speaking. Um, so uh, is that that doesn't seem to be expansionist either in, in the definition of that word that I was using. Of course, the Taiwanese government has traditionally claimed to be the government of the mainland. They wouldn't say they're a part of of, of communist China. They're saying they are China as a as a sovereign. Yeah, they as a sovereign that. representative. Yeah, they've actually the the, the Taiwanese officials are uh, you know all lawyers and PhDs, so they're incredibly subtle in what they say. But on the one hand, they've given up the claim to the mainland. <laughs> <laughs> and they're willing to recognize the mainland. But on the other hand, uh, they have not changed their constitution or their official name as the Republic of China. Right. No, I, uh, 
I want to, I would love to keep talking about the international legal issues about the nine dash seven dash. I want to stop and, before you correct me. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't, but I don't want to ruin the podcast for everybody. <laughs> so I actually wanted to ask you about the Tiananmen papers. Sure. Um, you know, so you, uh, listeners should know that you are one of the editors of um, this uh, remarkable archive of papers uh, from within the leadership of the communist party that made it out. And uh, about ten. So one thing I wanted to ask is, how did you get the papers out? Can you discuss that now? It's been twenty years, and I know it, back then when they appeared, you wanted to, you know, preserve the confidentiality how you got them and who helped. But can you shed any more light now on um, how? Because it's it's an it's a remarkable thing. I think that the, those documents, if they're authentic, I think they are. They you've said they are to get these those out and publish is amazing. Yeah, I think it's remarkable. It's not the only leak that has ever occurred from inside of communist China, but it is probably the biggest and and it is remarkable. I can't say more now than I could say before, but I want to clarify that I didn't I didn't get the the documents out myself. Yes, yes. no, and, they were given to you. Yes. They were given to but me. But you were aren't you banned from China? Not only am I banned, but I believe that I'm liable under the Chinese espionage law Ah, for espionage simply for being in receipt of these documents. And I think American espionage law has a similar principle. Yes, there's something called the Espionage Act. (laughs) Even though I didn't didn't steal the documents, all I did was to receive them and and Uh with Perry supervise the translation and publication. I think you can tell me, am I liable to be prosecuted? Well, I don't know about Chinese law, but, <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, I, what, would, I would say don't traffic in U.S. classified documents. That's a good, that's no, a that, good rule. So, so you won't that. go to Hong Kong either now, right? That's right. I won't go there. Wow. Wow. So, and, and I'm glad that we don't have an extradition treaty with China. Yes. Yeah, so well, I don't think we ever will. <laughs> so let me ask um, if... Uh, Can you imagine another similar leak ever happening? Are we going to ever know someday, for example, how President Xi, you know, took power in this way with the consent of the Politburo? And so are we ever going to learn whether there were actually big debates within the Politburo and the Standing Committee about letting President Xi do what he has been doing? Or we are, are we never really, are are we never really going to get, even like, I was thinking of this, even, um, you know, Khrushchev, right? We have Khrushchev's memoirs, as it were, after he was deposed, he got out these recordings of, uh, you know, the, uh, of his account of things. Are we ever really going to learn that about China even years later? Well, two things about that. I was just reading a book by a colleague of, of mine, friend, friend of mine, Joseph Fusmith at Boston University, called Rethinking Chinese Politics. And Joe contributes to the China Leadership Monitor, which is published out of Hoover, by the way. It, it used to be. It's moved over to uh, Minchin Pei at Claremont now. But yes, we did uh, it for years. For years. Minchin edits it, but d- does he not publish yeah, it, it moved, through it, Hoover? Yeah, it moved over. It moved over. But, so you yeah. guys should interview Joe. Smith, but uh, he pays such close attention to the tea leaves, you know, the usual Pekingology things that he's able to um, come up with a very plausible reconstruction of the kinds of things that John is asking about. But on your direct question, will we ever see another leak? These leaks happen in two ways. In the case of the Tiananmen Papers, as I said in the intro to the Tiananmen Papers, it's because there was a faction in the 
in the yeah. leadership that had access to these materials that was very disaffected, dissatisfied. Yeah. They lost. Yeah. The, the, <laughs> yeah. They lost. So they yeah, they so, leaked. So, so yeah. somehow they leaked. And that happens from time to time. And the other thing that happens is that Chinese leaders from time to time either tell their stories to mm. outsiders or they publish memoirs, which, you know, you have to use with care, but which provide a huge amount of insight into the kinds of things you were asking about, you know. And so I think for the time being, nobody's going to leak on Xi Jinping because he's tremendously powerful and vengeful. <laughs> yeah. well, I like, what I like about your work is that it, um, uh, it, it you know, rejects the idea that China is acting like a unified monolith. Or you stress over and over again, it's a very diverse society. There's lots of groups, there's tensions and your work, you know, resists, you know, the easy thing to do in the United States, we should say, oh, like what used to do with the Soviets, right? They're so mm-hmm. unified, organized, determined, and so on. If you uh, were thinking about what was going on inside, you know, behind the facade of China now, what groups do you think would be fighting and struggling? Uh, and what are they fighting over? A friend of mine, I so th- there's a huge debate, as you know, in the China uh, sort of uh, watching community about whether there's opposition to Xi Jinping. Another friend of mine, Roger Garside, who's a retired British diplomat a long time ago and later worked as a banker, has recently published a book called China Coup. And Roger says, there's so much opposition. Xi Jinping has made so many mistakes and, you know, he's overreaching uh, the kind of things that Misha asked about. He's overreaching in the South China Sea. The Europeans are offended with wolf warrior diplomacy. The Australians have decisively flipped onto the side of the United States. He's the crackdown in Xinjiang and in Hong Kong offending people and so forth. Um, and domestically, he's, uh, you know, cut the legs out of so many people with his anti-corruption campaigns. So, so Roger says, there's so much opposition, there's going to be a coup. Uh, this is a speculative, you know, he writes a very convincing speculative chapter. My own view, though, is that in the p- power structure of those who have power, the military, the h- upper levels of the party, they support Xi Jinping. It actually is politically speaking, more of a unified monolith than it was even under Deng Xiaoping, who faced quite a bit of opposition to his reform and opening policy from more conservative leaders. And I think there's a lot of support for Xi Jinping because Chinese uh, power, you know, people who have power in the system think he's succeeding. You know, we see a lot of problems. I think they see, wow, you've really, you know, whooped the U.S. upside the head. The Americans are running scared. Uh, you you took the South China Sea without firing a shot. The Taiwanese are scared that, you know, um, they uh, our economy is growing. We, we squelched COVID-19, so on and so forth. So I think he has a lot of support, partly that he has created by purging those who didn't support him. Farther down in the society, a Chinese friend of mine has said that there are three groups that hate Xi Jinping. The intellectuals, because they don't have any freedom. The private entrepreneurs, because they don't have security. And the cadres, the, the, the bureaucrats in the middle and lower levels of the system who are under tremendous pressure every day to perform. And I would add a 
a couple of other groups, uh, the, the religious believers who are outside of the official religious beliefs, and of course, the big national minorities, um, the, the, the various Muslim populations. There are about a dozen different Muslim ethnic groups in China and the Tibetans. So there's a lot of unhappy people, but there are also a lot of people who are pretty happy. Um, you know, the broad middle class, others who are better off now than their parents were. So let me, one last question, uh, and then I think Misha will have a few more before we close out. Then is if, if you find that uh, actually dissent or um, instability is reduced compared to these previous leaders, and China is fundamentally acting in a defensive way, uh, is your main worry uh, you know, what strategists sometimes call right, the security dilemma, both the United States and China are trying to act defensively, but we both interpret what the other person is doing as offensive in nature. And, you know, there's political scientists, including at Columbia, who've written famous books saying this can produce an, a spiral of escalation and lead to a war that or confrontation that neither side really wanted because we misinterpret each other's defensive Measure so when you're saying all the things you're seeing the United States is doing, we we think we're doing them for defense, but yeah, the way you've put it, China's interpreting all of them as us meddling with their you know with their affairs. Is this is this what your your main worry is then? Yeah, my main worry probably is around uh, Taiwan, which is not original with me. I think that's everybody's main worry. Some commentators uh, think about. Pompeo, for example, or Newt Gingrich, and I could name others, um, believe that China wants to overthrow the global system and and sort of suffocate Western civilization. And I don't know, you know, what quite what they think. The, I think it was uh, uh, was it uh, Newt Gingrich who characterized China as a greater threat to Western to the United States or to Western civilization than Stalin and Hitler. I think that's hugely exaggerated. But I think there is great danger around around Taiwan because we cannot give it up. We're committed to it. Biden said on uh, the other day on TV, we're committed to defending it. It's 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 true politically. It's not true as a treaty commitment. Um, the, the, there's no uh, legal treaty, as you say, there's no treaty or even statute which says we have no, to defend. There right. isn't any. The Taiwan Relations Act just says that we need to uh, uh, help them, pr- basically. Pr- give them aid. Yeah. Give them aid. But, yeah. but politically speaking, if the United States were to walk away with Taiwan, either preemptively to avoid a clash or during a clash, I think it would lead to the collapse of all of our alliances. No, no ally in history ever really trusts their ally. But in the case of the United States, where we have 60 alliances and we've been very flaky all through our history with these alliances, and we've been through the Trump administration in particular, uh, walking away from Taiwan would really tip the Japanese and the Koreans and the Australians and NATO and others into self-defense, including nuclearization, probably. And this is not to mention our commitment to Taiwan because it's a democracy and because of our economic ties. Um, and the Chinese certainly are never going to give up on their ambition to control Taiwan because they need it for security purposes. So this is a, a, a situation that has no sort of win-win resolution to it. It has to be managed. 
Um, so as you in know, the, in the old days, we would have both gone to the king of Italy and asked him to arbitrate. Yeah. Or the pope. <laughs> right, that's how we used to pope. settle these things back. In, yeah, the, uh, or the pope <laughs> back in the Middle Ages. And I'm not sure that there's even a you know mediated solution available. Um, it's really one of those zero sum situations. So what to do about it? And I, my own answer to that is not to declare, uh, you know, to, to disambiguate our commitment to Taiwan, which is advocated by some people, because I think talk is cheap and talk is even provocative. But what we should be doing is to make sure that our military position there is adequate which I understand it isn't, you know, I'm not a military specialist. And I've heard, uh, recently heard a talk today by Ashton Carter being interview, uh, interviewed on a RAND Corporation program where he said that the, our military posture is actually sufficient. But there's a lot of talk that it isn't sufficient, that China, the DOD itself publishes these reports saying China has checkmated us with asymmetric capabilities around Taiwan. So I don't know what it is, but I think, you know, uh, having an actual uh, denial capability. And then my colleague, Tom Christensen at Columbia, emphasizes that deterrence has two parts, denial and assurance. You have to assure the Chinese that we are not maneuvering for Taiwan independence. That would force them to launch an attack. So we need to assure them that we really just want status quo. And secondly, the denial capability is there that if they launch an attack, which is a very difficult operation for them, that we have the capability to, to prevent them from succeeding. Well, that gets, uh, to Michigan, that gets, you know, more difficult as time goes on, right? And, and first of all, nothing stays static. You have now Taiwanese who, who do not consider themselves as Chinese. So the, the, it's sort of an inherent sense of independence on their part. And just, you know, just thinking as a historian, I mean, we're in the midst of it and everything you say makes perfect sense. And yet, you know, nothing stays, especially things that are in very ambiguous conditions, just don't stay. And this has stayed for now, you know, 70 years almost, um, it it just seems like we're we're getting to a point where it it's less and less tenable. Now that you know may not come in our certainly our professional lifetimes or even our actual lifetimes, but you know in fifty years I doubt people are going to be sitting there saying, well, you know we have to just keep we have to avoid an outright conflict because something something's going to change. But but beyond By that, I want to Misha, let me interrupt you there. Please, in your last book you have a great chapter which is a sin. And I'm sorry, I forget the name of that book, as I do most books that I'm referring to. You have a wonderful chapter, which is a scenario of how the war in Taiwan might break out, you know, escalating from a, a, an accident. And I thought it was the most convincing scenario of a Taiwan straight clash that I've read. So you're well, right. But, but, you know, we thank you. Management, managing the problem means avoiding those accidents. And especially since accidents will happen, avoiding the escalation. And then it means we have to communicate with the other side, which is very difficult because, you know, it, I agree with you. It's really scary. That's the thing I'm the most scared about in the U.S. China relationship. Thank you. Uh, 
let me, uh, I, I was going to say the book is available at fine booksellers near you, but I'll, I'll, I'll skip that. What's and, the title of the uh, book? The, the, well, the title of the book is Asia's New Geopolitics, and yeah. uh, it's a collection of essays, and so I appreciate you mentioning that. Um, let me, since we're running uh, towards the end of our time, and, and uh, we've been very generous talking about all this, I, I, I want to follow up with just a couple questions um, that, that build on some of the things we've been talking about. Um, to, to expand it beyond the, the Taiwan discussion. Um, you, you also wrote in, in the 2016 piece, which is just a piece I like. This is very concise, and I hope people take a look at it. It's, it's very clear. But you also write that um, back then you thought Beijing does not want to create a Chinese-centered world order. Uh, and, and I'm wondering if you still feel that, and, and, and I guess maybe even more to push a little bit, what would you define as a Chinese-centered world order? Not one, obviously, where it invades Japan, it invades Russia, it invades Europe. But in an inter- integrated, globalized world, could, could it get to that in ways that would be detrimental to our interests? Yes. So uh, wh- what did I mean by a Chinese-centered world? I think I was addressing, I don't remember, you know, uh, this idea that China wanted to become this something like the dominant superpower in the world and, and, and uh, call all the shots and uh, get rid of the American-dominated institutions and um, create its own separate institutions. And I, I, I think, so I think I want to back away, you know, five years later, sort of revise um, that halfway. So I think China's pretty satisfied with the global the existence of a free trade global order, the existence of the United Nations built around the principle of sovereignty. I think they um, understand, they, they participate in the UN human rights uh, system. They participate in it quite actively, more than we do, I think, um, in, in trying to blunt its ability to attack China, but using it to attack others and to support their own allies and so on. So I, I don't think they want to create an alternate world war. Um, but the Belt and Road Initiative, I think, is an attempt to pivot more of the world economies toward China, to, to, to provide raw materials to China and to serve as markets to China. I think they would like to do that through the Belt and Road. Um, they haven't really succeeded in doing so. I think in most, China is now the major trading partner of many, many countries. But in terms of Chinese investment in most countries, it's still a relatively small percentage compared to the investment from the sort of legacy powers. And I think their vision, their realistic vision of a future world is one that's multilateral. They don't think the, you know, they think the United States is in decline, but I don't think they believe it's going to just pick up and go home and and shrivel up. And I think they believe that Japan, the European Union, Russia, India are all, you know, going to still be there and that it isn't either in their interest or within their ambition. Uh, You know, the United States was the so-called sole superpower, at least we thought we were that for a couple of decades, but that was an extraordinary, uh, it wasn't even real at the time. And it's not something that I think the Chinese believe can be replicated by them. So, Andy, one last question. Um, 
there's a big debate on John was asking about Xi Jinping and how would we ever know if we'll ever know how he, you know, fully consolidated power, which is something that appears still to be going on. Um, you've written that that she exercises more power than any CCP leader, any Chinese communist leader in history, including Mao. And there's a big debate here in Washington. Is it all about Xi? Is the reason we're having these problems because he's more aggressive? If we get rid of him, will things be fine? Um, what First, do you still believe Xi is more powerful than any other leader? And if so, then then does that mean that once he's gone, we'll have a, we'll have a better relationship with China? Mm-hmm. Well, so, uh, you know, David Shambaugh in your uh, podcast with David said that she uh, is not as powerful as Mao Zedong was. Uh, but I think the difference between Xi Jinping and Mao Zedong, Mao Zedong did have absolute power, but his attention was uh, wandering. You know, he would, he would, you know, he would get. Yes. Get, and now we know where it was wandering to. It's, <laughs> yes, we should come much clearer. Yeah, that's right. Uh, well, there's this book called The Private Life of Chairman Mao, yes. which, which I wrote the intro to that tells a lot about what he was doing in his spare time. And he, he didn't sleep that much. But um, uh, but Mao, Mao would uh, uh, let things go for a while and then he would get, uh, you know, then he would intervene. Uh, in a dramatic way, and nobody could stop him when he intervened. But Xi Jinping seems to be a guy who pays attention to everything all the time. I don't know how he does that, but he seems to be constantly at numerous controlled dials of the system in every way, runs a whole different bunch of leading small groups in different policy areas. And as I said before, he seems to face no opposition that I can see. You know, there human nature, there ought to be opposition to Xi Jinping among the other top leaders. They're all going to be ambitious people, but I just don't see the evidence of it. And in Mao's case, he faced uh, constant uh, opposition. He had to keep purging people. They had a series of what they called line struggles. Um, So that's why I see Xi Jinping as, in that sense, more powerful than Mao. I mean, Mao could uh, spout off any ideology and everybody had to believe it. And in the case of Xi Jinping, it seems to be a lot of work to make people believe in his ideology, which is, I think, rather less interesting than Mao's ideology anyway, sort of anodyne. But but he really does seem to be controlling everything all the time. If he um, He will leave power eventually, of course, one way or another. But not next year at the next party Congress, right? He, uh, we expect him to take a third term uh, in office as uh, party uh, general secretary and top dog. Um, at some point, he'll either arrange for a succession or possibly he'll get sick or fall down the stairs or something like that. Or And, and then there'll be a, some kind of a crisis and somebody will take over and have to consolidate power, the next person. And that could be messy and there could be weakness. But it seems to me that the, the you know, you, you might look back and, and wish that you still had Xi Jinping around because Xi Jinping, at least it seems to me, is very smart. He, he, he took the South China Sea without launching a war. He has changed, he has hugely improved the Chinese position around this disputed Senkaku Islands with Japan without launching, without triggering a war. Um, he has 
you know, enhance Chinese diplomatic influence and economic reach around the world without so far triggering really any, there's no way to block those things. He's, uh, so uh, he actually is rather more careful, I would say, or strategic, very clever. And somebody else who comes in who's, you know, nutcase, who's a, a, a Hitler or something. I mean, I shouldn't even mention that because I think China's geostrategic position is almost the opposite of Germany's under Hitler. So it's not a good analogy. Mm-hmm. But somebody who comes in and just, you know, wants to throw the dice in a way that Xi Jinping doesn't seem to do so would be a lot more trouble to manage than Xi Jinping is. Well, that that's actually a fascinating point to end today that when she is gone we might miss him or he might say you won't have xi jinping to kick around anymore uh (laughs) it's it will be fascinating to see how that actually plays out but we can't we can't end without my noting that we we opened up the show by by noting this great anniversary of yours uh but we should note that 1971 Henry Kissinger goes to China. Andy Nathan goes to Colombia. Just a coincidence? I don't think so. <laughs> Clearly, the history of U.S.-China relations has been has been dominated along that axis, and we're we're really glad that you took some time, Andy, to to join us um, and talk about all these issues. And uh, we hope that uh, as we go forward on on the Party Congress next year and the like, that um, hopefully you'll be able to come back and, and talk with us again. Thank you, Misha and John. It's been fun. Well, on behalf of John Yu, this is Misha Oslin. Thank you once again for joining us on The Pacific Century. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society and improve the human condition. For more information about our work or to listen to more of our podcasts or watch our videos, please visit hoover.org.